Well, good morning. We are continuing in a series that uh, Pastor Harry started last week in the book of 1 John, the letter of uh, 1 John written to the church. So I'd encourage you to, to turn there if you still have one of these old-fashioned things like this. It's called a book and a Bible. It's right close to the back. Just go uh, right to the back and uh, back up a little bit and you'll find uh, 1 John. If it's on your app, you'll find it another way. Uh, but just encourage you to go there, and uh, we're in this series, and, and basically just kind of walking through the text and just seeing what John has to say, what God is saying through John to the church at that time, and also for us as the church today, and the things that I think are so relevant. This series is called Alignment, and we are just looking at the ways that we are called to live our lives in alignment, that how our faith is and how we understand who God is. Uh, changes how we live and that there needs to be alignment in those things and so that's the theme that kind of is being woven through this series Uh, and today we're looking at a section in in John chapter 2. John was a church planter uh, somebody who established churches I mean he was one of the apostles who was there with Jesus but he established churches as did a number of people at that time uh, he was establishing churches in Asia Minor, uh, a church like Ephesus, as historians look at that, and, and the different places that he would have planted and so on. Uh, Ephesus would be in modern-day Turkey and in that region, which, as we know, is an interesting part of the world where the Christian faith is not, it's emerging again, but has been silent and dormant for so, so many years. Uh, the churches that, that John planted and some of the issues that he was addressing as you see in his letters and as commentators and historians kind of look at the the different context that he was writing into they had a lot of challenges I mean it seems to be one of the things that is consistent through all the ages is that churches have challenges and John's did too Uh, his struggled in many ways he was addressing a whole number of issues Uh, Paul and Barnabas established numerous churches as well and some that went really well and didn't have as many challenges. Some that had more challenges than others. Paul and Barnabas established a church like the one in Antioch that might have been considered a mega church in that time. A church that was thriving in many ways. Large, wealthy, influential, sent missionaries throughout uh, that whole region in, in the Mediterranean and so on. Uh, what you might call very successful, that church. But John's didn't seem to have that kind of impact. John's churches and the people that he wrote to seemed to be struggling in different ways. They struggled with conflict, did not really thrive, the senses, or grow or prosper, at least to some measures. And so the church that John is writing to in this letter, in these, these letters of 1 John and 2 and 3 John, are, are an eclectic group in many ways. Again, they're predominantly Jewish, but they also have many Greeks that are there. So they were people who, uh, some of which who knew the law of Moses, who knew the Old Testament writings, who understood that culture and that background, but also many Greeks who were new to these congregations who had none of that history. And I, found, I, I find it interesting, and I think that's where it it's, relates to today as well too, where maybe decades ago, if you were in a gathering like this, you would have most people who grew up in the church, most people who sort of understood the history, understood the culture, the context, the references, and so on. But it's really not true today. I know that even in a room like this, there are people who, many people who did not grow up in the church, who don't have that history, don't have that understanding. And so we too can be more of an eclectic group, similar maybe to what John was writing to at that time. But John was a faithful pastor. 
He was somebody who was passionate about his faith. And you can understand why. I mean, he was a man who had been with Jesus. He is a man who had reclined with Jesus at that last supper and ate with him. He was a man who had Jesus wash his feet. He was a man who walked with him on roads, ate with him in places. They slept in similar places. They did ministry together for a number of years. He was a man who saw Jesus crucified and a man who saw him rise again. I mean, he had seen astounding things that were the foundation of his faith and were the power behind his testimony because he's declaring to these people, this is what I have seen and experienced. And so he had an unshakable faith and he was a faithful pastor who continued to, to teach this gospel to the people and to the churches that he led. If you look at the, the four gospels that give the account of Jesus' life and ministry, the last one, the fourth one, is the gospel of John. And it's one of the most beloved books in all of Scripture. I think for a lot of people, and if I asked for a show of hands, probably a lot of people would say, that's my favorite book in the Bible. And so this one too, penned by John, who wrote and articulated the life of Jesus from his perspective, his experience, anointed by the Spirit of God as he talked about that. And we'll make reference to that gospel a number of times uh, today. But here in this letter, he's writing to these churches, to these fledgling people, trying to understand their faith and how it is to live out that faith. And in 1 John, we see really two major themes that I want us to understand. The first theme is Christology, meaning understanding who Jesus is and what are the implications of the resurrection. So he's helping people understand right thinking about Christ. And and so Christology is is a really big theme for John as he's pointing people to understand clearly who this Jesus was that he saw dying on the cross and rose from the grave and the implications of that. And the second theme that comes through continually in 1 John is uh, how it is that we are to live, ethical living, ethical behavior. In other words, that Christology, who Jesus is, makes a difference in how we live that out of our faith. And so these two themes come through again and again. In other words, how you live matters. And these were really two of the battlegrounds that I think were going on within the church and that John was addressing in many ways. And we see that even in the text today. You see, John John didn't just want a church that had all the right thinking, but was completely unloving. He also did not want a church that was really completely loving, but didn't have any of the right thinking. See, John wanted them both. He wanted both sound doctrine and a vibrant community, which I think is so important for every church, to have both sound doctrine, doctrine and a vibrant community, that there is both right thinking, and truly people who love one another. And so let's dive into the text uh, as we walk through uh, 1 John chapter 2, and we're going to start in in verse 3 and following. And so John is teaching them now about what it means to love God. And it's a pretty straightforward passage. He says, and we can be sure that we know him if we obey his commandments, as he's talking about relationship with Christ. In fact, if you go back even to just the, the verses at the beginning where Harry left off last week, Uh, verses 1 and 2, he's writing about the Spirit of God in verse 1, and then secondly, he's he's talking about Jesus and his his work on the cross. He says, he himself is the sacrifice that atones for our sins, and not only our sins, but the sins of all the world. And so he's talking about Jesus as God, and he's saying, and we can be sure that we know him if we obey his commands. If someone claims, I know God, but doesn't obey God's commandments, that person is a liar and not living in the truth. 
But those who obey God's word truly show how completely they love him. And this is how we know that we are living in him. Those who say they live in God should live their lives as Jesus lived. It's a pretty straightforward message as we look at these first verses. I mean, John is quite a straight shooter. He says, basically, if you love God, obey. There it is. If you love God, there'll be evidence of it in your life. And if you say that you love God and you actually don't live in obedience to God and his commands, you're a liar. He uses pretty strong words here. He says you don't know the truth. In other words, if we claim to be spiritually alive, there should be some evidence of that in your life. You should be able to tell. People should be able to tell that the love of God is in you. It should be unmistakable. And as is often the case, there is tension here as we think about this. There's tension in terms of understanding and how we manage this tension I think is really important. Because oftentimes we hear, and maybe you've heard it said, and maybe you've said it yourself, I've said it myself, where we might say to somebody, well, you know what, Christianity actually isn't about rules and regulations. Christianity is about relationship. It's about relationship. Now, that is true, and probably a good corrective when it comes to, especially the religious leaders of Jesus' day, the Pharisees and others who had all these rules. Not only did they have the law of Moses, but they added about 600 and some other laws and rules just to make sure that they got it right. And they were rule keepers, like to the extreme. And so that, that phrase that Christianity isn't about rules, it's about relationship, is, is true. And, and again, a good corrective in that. And especially even today for people who have a tendency to be list makers and rule keepers. And say, well, the Christian faith is about doing this and this and this and not this and this and this. And so... It is a corrective in that way, and it is true in that way, and it is helpful in that way, but we have to understand the tension that you cannot escape the teaching of John, of Paul, and of Jesus that says the Christian faith requires something of you. It requires a response. In other words, that if you're a true follower of Christ, there will be evidence of that. In other words, if you have had transformation in your life, people will see that that they will see that something has changed, something is different. There is a response that comes, and we see that there is a link between loving God and obedience to God. In other words, how you live it out will be reflected and reflecting your actual love of God. Let me just look at, now going to John's Gospel, John chapter 15, verse 10. Jesus is speaking here, and what does Jesus say about this? He says, when you obey my commandments, you remain in my love just as I obey my Father's commandments and remain in His love. So Jesus is saying very clearly there's a linkage between love and obedience. And Jesus says, I walked in that, just like I modeled that, just like I lived that, now you too need to do the same thing, that if you truly love God, you will walk in obedience. You know, oftentimes... uh, You've seen that, that saying or those letters, WWJD, what, did, what would Jesus do? Good thing. You see bracelets like this one. This one doesn't actually say that. It says something else. But, but you see those things that, that says, you know, what would Jesus do? And it, it has often been, you know, it sort of feels a little bit trite after a while. But it's actually a good thing to ask ourselves. What would Jesus do? Or even what did Jesus do as we read Scripture? Because Jesus calls us to follow him. And so it is a good guy to say, okay, well, what did... And Jesus says here in this teaching in John chapter 15 that just like I obeyed the Father, you need to too obey and follow the Father. 
You need to walk in the same way. And as it says in this text in verse 6, those who say they live in God should live their lives as Jesus did. So we are called to obey. We're called to follow in obedience. And here in verse 6, we see that word, if you have the ESV translation, it has that word abide. And it's translated in different ways in, in different texts, but it means to live in God. And that word abide, that word that is translated in that way, comes through 24 times in the next two chapters. It's just over and over again that theme and that word that comes through again and again of how it is that we are called to live this out. To live in Christ, live as he did, to follow him. So the main point here in this first section is we see that if we know God, we will have a desire to obey. There will be evidence of it in our lives. Let's keep reading. Verse 7 and 8. John goes on and he says, Dear friends, I'm not writing a new commandment for you. Rather, it is an old one that you have had from the very beginning. This old commandment, to love one another, is the same message you heard before. Yet it is also new because Jesus lived the truth of this commandment and you also are living it. For the darkness is disappearing and the true light is already shining. John says it's not really a new commandment. And especially for those who are of Jewish origin and who understood the law of Moses, he's saying to them, you know what, you, you will remember this law. You will remember this call to love. You will understand it clearly. It's not something that is new to at least you folks. And if you go to uh, Deuteronomy chapter 6, these people who were of Jewish origin and ancestry and understood this, they would have known this inside out and backwards. They would have known this call O Israel, love the Lord your God, the Lord alone. You must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your strength. And you must commit yourselves wholeheartedly to these commands that I'm giving you today. And you see that linkage again? It says, love the Lord your God. And how that is expressed is live out of these commands. Live in obedience. And so John is saying to them, this command that I'm giving you isn't really a new one. It's one that we've had right from the beginning. It's one that we have understood right from way back. And again, especially if you are of Jewish heritage, you say to these people. And the reality is, I think for most of us, for however long that we have walked in the Christian faith, is that our challenge isn't understanding what Scripture says as much as walking in obedience to what Scripture says. It's not like we have a deficit of understanding. Typically, the challenge is, is understanding the parts or living out of the parts that we do understand. I think it was John Maxwell who once says, I'm educated far beyond my obedience. It's so true. It's so true. We know so much more than we do. We know so much more that we live. And so when Jesus says, and when we see Scripture teaching about all kinds of things that calls us to live in the ways of God and not in the ways that oppose God, and some of those things that we, we kind of look at and go, hmm, how does that affect us? Like things like gluttony, lust, sexual sin, coveting what other people have, all those simple things, so-called simple things, you go, I wonder what Jesus really meant by that. Well, I think we know. The challenge is, do we live it? Do we walk in obedience? Then John says, but I am also, this is also a new command, he says in verse 8. He says, it is also new. Because he says, Jesus lived out the truth of this commandment. In John chapter uh, 13, verse 34, Jesus again is speaking. He says, so now I'm giving you a new commandment. Love each other. Just as I have loved you, you should love each other. And your love for one another will prove to the world that you are my disciples. 
So in a sense, John is saying, both in the gospel as he's quoting Jesus and also in this letter, he's saying that the evidence, that there is something new that's happening. Something has changed. Because Jesus has walked among us. Jesus has died on the cross. Jesus has risen from the grave in the resurrection. And this is a new era. And now you have the Spirit of God within you. And we are to love like Jesus loved. He went to the cross for us. He's saying you need to walk in that kind of sacrificial love. So in a sense, he's saying there is something new here. And he says, you are also living in it. And I think he's giving a word of encouragement to this church. And he's saying, you're living in it. Keep going. Don't pull back. Allow the light of Christ to continue to shine in your lives and keep going. Because the resurrection changes everything. Then verse 9 to 11, he says, If anyone claims, while I'm living in the light, but hates a Christian brother or sister, that person is still living in darkness. Anyone who loves another brother or sister is living in the light and does not cause others to stumble. But anyone who hates another brother or sister is still living and walking in darkness. Such a person does not know the way to go, having been blinded by the darkness. Sometimes it's hardest to love those in the church. John makes it really clear that there's not an option here. He says, if you really love God, you'll love your fellow Christian brothers and sisters. And you'll love them extravagantly. There's no two ways about it. He says, that's what it means to walk in the light. You, you can't actually say that you are in the light, that you have the light of Christ, and hate a Christian brother or sister at the same time. There is no alignment in that. They cannot coexist. And so he says, you need to love your people. Called to love the people of the church. And you know, the true test is to love the unlovely. It allows others to see and allows others not to stumble when they see that kind of love. And you know, John, he very much uses really broad strokes here. He uses sharp contrasts. He uses strong words. He says things like, like hate. Like don't hate your Christian brother or sister. Now he's not just talking about a, an outburst of anger, but he's talking about something more, something more pervasive, a pervasive attitude that has become a habit, that has become just a, a posture of how you operate towards another. He talks about liars. If you live this way, you are liars. You're completely in the dark. Strong language, stark language. But you know, we know that the church life is often so much more nuanced than that, isn't it? It's a little bit tougher to tell. Okay, do I actually kind of hate somebody? Am I living truly with love? Am I loving another person? How does that play out in my life? I think it's, it's so often easier to love people who are far from God because we have no expectations right? But when it's people that are close to you, when it's people that have the love of God within them, that they have the gospel, we have expectations. It's just like our family members, right? Those people that are closest to you, you have high expectations for. And when they disappoint you, it hurts more because of those expectations. And same within the church is that we have expectations. And so sometimes it's hard to love. And yet that is what we are called to do. There's one prominent pastor in in Florida, apparently, who said this quote, about his church. He says, you know what? There's nothing wrong with my church that a couple of funerals wouldn't fix. I thought that was a rather unfortunate statement. But there's something within... No. Um, But there maybe is something that resonates with us if we're brutally honest, right? We kind of think, yeah, you know, 
few of those people just weren't there, this life would be a little easier. But that's part of being the church, is that we're called to love one another. And you know, one of the other pastoral problems in all this is I was thinking about this text again, and what I would see is just some really straightforward, simple teaching that John is doing here is the fact that, that we talk about this command to love one another so much that it kind of loses its power, doesn't it? Like, it, you just sort of get inoculated to it. It's like, yeah, we know that we're called to love one another. Like, we, you just know that. I mean, it's a central command in Scripture. But it's like those things that are so well known that we get so accustomed to the language that we forget about the implications of it. And we forget about what it actually really means in this command to love. It means that we reach out to those who have need. It means that we forgive the Christian brother or sister who has hurt us. It means that we, we work at relationships that have gone sideways. It means that when we speak the truth, we speak the truth in love. And so we need to recapture this command to love one another. And then John goes on in verse 12 to 14. An inter- interesting section. Very stylized. It has a different kind of rhythm to it. And there's something different going on here. And he says, I'm writing to you who are God's children because your sins have been forgiven through Jesus. I'm writing to you who are mature in the faith because you know Christ who existed from the beginning. I'm writing to you who are young in the faith because you have won your battle with the evil one. I've written to you who are God's children because you know the Father. I've written to you who are mature in the faith because you know Christ who existed from the beginning. I've written to you who are young in the faith because you are strong. God's word lives in your hearts and you have won your battle with the evil one. As you look closely at this text, he's actually not really speaking about spiritual maturity. Because everything that he says here is something that a spiritual mature person or a Christian would actually have embraced or have. But he is speaking about people of different ages of spiritual maturity. And he's, he's sort of articulating this in a unique way of he's calling people of every age in a very unique way. These unique groups. He's, he's, uh, some commentators have said, when you look at that in the original languages and the context and so on, it makes the most sense that he was talking about three groups probably. Children, parents, and young people. In other words, all segments of the church. He's speaking to every segment of the church and saying, listen, listen, listen. You have this. You have this faith. Live in it. He's saying that you know that your sins have been forgiven. You know Jesus who existed from the beginning. You have overcome the evil one. You know the Father. You are strong. You have the Word of God abiding in you. Live in it. So he's calling the church of all ages to live out of this love of God. It's interesting, if you were able to be at the congregational meeting last Sunday night, uh, Don Fraze did the devotional on that. And as I was reading this text, I was thinking of Don's devotional where he gave a call to both uh, the young and the old. And he did it and he separated it. I thought it was really unfair because he made the dividing line at 50 and he put me in the old category. And so he said, those of you who are like 50 and older, he says, you know what? Stay strong in the faith. Continue to bless the church. Be engaged. Stay strong. Keep going. Realize that you still have so much to offer, you old people like me. I took that in totally the way he meant it. Affirmation. But then he says, hey, you young people under 50, like the 49-year-old who prayed for me. Don't let anyone look down on you because you are young. You are leaders. Step into this calling that you have. You have the love of God within you. Keep strong and keep going. And that word that Don gave us, for those of us who were able to be there, is very similar to what John is saying to the church here. 
He's saying, those of you who are older, you have this love of Christ within you. You have the gospel. Live in it. Those of you who are young people, he says, you have the love of God within you. Live in it. Those of you who are children, live in it. You have this faith, even a childlike faith, and keep going. And so he's speaking this beautiful call to the whole church to keep going. And then we come to this last section that we'll look at here today, which I think is in many ways the pinnacle of this section. He says, Do not love this world nor the things it offers you, for when you love the world, you do not have the love of the Father in you. For the world offers only a craving for physical pleasure, a craving for everything we see, and pride in our achievements and possessions. These are not from the Father, but are from this world. And this world is fading away away, along with everything that people crave. But anyone who does what pleases God will live forever. Here in this section, he's essentially saying, we have two choices in life. Either we love God or we love the world. Which way are you going to have it? Because you can't have it both ways. And he says you have to choose. Because one draws you one way and one draws you another way. You cannot love both God and money. As Matthew says, as Jesus quotes in Matthew, remember that text? When he talks about our love of money, one of those things of the world that pulls us away, he says you cannot serve two masters. You can only serve one. And John, in a very similar way, is saying that. He says, the world offers cravings, cravings that that often leave you feeling dissatisfied in the end. They're fleeting. When we see that word world, it comes from two different meanings that we see in Scripture. One of the ways that the word world is used is when it talks about the cosmos, the created material universe, like in John 3.16 where it says, for God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son. That God so loved all that he created. That God so loved that even though this world was in opposition, he still loved extravagant life. But another way that the word world is used is the world of sin. The world of everything that stands in opposition to God. The world that is all about the the cravings of the flesh. The world under the control of Satan. And this is what John is meaning here. And he says these three things. He says we can have cravings for physical pleasure. can include sensual or sexual desires, but likely broader to any physical desire that pulls us away from God. So it it, it begs the question, what are the things of the flesh that our flesh craves that are in opposition to God's purposes? Secondly, he says, there's cravings for everything that we see. The visual things, the things that we see through our eyes where the sin comes out, where we have that constant tendency to go, okay, I want that. I want that, that longing, that emptiness, that longing for more and more. Gluttony when we eat too much. Covenantness when we want what others have. The mindless entertainment that portrays things opposite to what God intends and what God wants for us. And then lastly, pride in our achievements and possessions. And this is that elitism that comes from one's view of wealth or rank or stature in society. When we completely lose any notion that everything that we are is completely dependent on the living God. When we come to the place that we, we feel so self-sufficient that we just don't need God anymore. And you know, that's a subtle one. We don't usually kind of declare that. We just sort of find ourselves growing into that more and more. And if we are honest, we can see that we are more of the world than we would probably like to admit. As I looked at those Three things that reminded me in Matthew 13 where Jesus is teaching and he talks about the sower and the seed and the seed that was thrown in the different places and how 
it was affected. In verse 22, he gives an explanation of the one kind of seed. He said, the seed that fell among the thorns represents those who hear God's word, but all too quickly the message is crowded out by the worries of this life and the lure of wealth. And so no fruit is produced. It's so easy to make good things ultimate things, isn't it? Make those things that God has given us as a gift to enjoy and to share with others in generosity, to make them ultimate things in our lives that they actually start to become our idols, even though it's hard to see it or admit it. So where is it in these three things that are the biggest things that draw you away from God where we need to confess and repent? In conclusion, I want you to understand that we are not saved by doing good works. But without good works, it gives evidence that clearly we are not saved. Scripture teaches that over and over again. Jesus again in Matthew 7 verse 21, says, not everyone who calls on me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Only those who actually do the will of my Father in heaven will enter. Because those who do the will of the Father, obey the Father, give evidence to their salvation by grace. So again, we need to understand this. There needs to be this alignment between our love of God and a life of obedience. I'm going to invite the worship team if they would come up as I conclude our time in prayer. Would you stand with me as I pray? (laughs) Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this clear teaching of John that just calls us to know your love for us and to give evidence of that love by being obedient to your word. And Lord, I pray that we wouldn't just get sidetracked by the things in Scripture that we don't understand. And sometimes we can do that to play games to kind of keep the the wheel spinning when what we really need to focus on is to live in obedience to things that we really, truly, clearly do understand that are unambiguous that are so maybe stark in contrast to the way we might be living our lives. And so, Lord, we come before you with humble hearts, with confession, with repentance. We pray that you, through your Holy Spirit, would do a unique work within us. Show us the areas of our lives where we are walking in defiance and we're not walking in obedience, Lord. And God, I pray that we would be a church that is marked by our love for you, by our love for each other. God, would we be that kind of people And so, Lord, we commit to these things, and we pray that you would continue to do that transforming work within us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.